In our podcast today, we interviewed a good friend of mine, Ricky Vegas, and we talked everything from toxic masculinity to, you know, really reflecting on oneself to what's happening and the pandemic right now for First Nations people to talking about murdered and missing Indigenous women. We actually also even talked about crafts. So I hope you really enjoy this episode. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Unconscious Bias Project podcast. My name is Lynette Mara, and I am your co-host along with Alexis Crone. Both of our pronouns are she, hers. Alexis, take us away. Who are we talking to today? So today we are talking to Ricky Vegas Triana. Ricky is a First Nations member of the Pasqua Yaqui tribe in the historic homeland of the Sonora Desert from Tucson, Arizona. He's a graduate of Stanford University and has his MBA from the University of Arizona. He has worked with Native communities in New Mexico, Arizona, Colorado, and California on issues of Native appropriation, tribal sovereignty, and cultural preservation. He's an activist for missing and murdered Indigenous women and for water rights, serving to raise awareness of government abuses of power in the U.S. and in Mexico. You can donate to the Coalition to Stop Violence Against Native Women at www.csvanw.org slash donate. You can follow and reach out to Ricky through Facebook at Ricky Vegas and on Instagram, Ricky Vegas 3. Hi, welcome. Thank you, everyone. Leo Sanchiman Yavu, Inapo, Ricky Vegas. Good to be here. Awesome. I'm so just totally happy that we can reconnect. I met you way back when we were young little burners <laughs> That's right. on the playa with our groups giving out a watermelon. And I know we, I remember talking about art and, and life and sort of experiencing life in the Nemeta sense and also getting silly. And you've since done so, so many things, got an MBA, moved to Arizona. So catch me up on what you're up to these days, what kind of projects you're working on. Oh, absolutely. As we move to the work from home model, you know, I started putting more of my time and effort into the cultural preservation activities of uh, the tribe. I'm a beater uh, of the Pascoyaki tribe. I make these uh, traditional necklaces called Ojo de Venados. Um, they're very sacred, long spiritual meaning behind them, but also getting into crafts such as building hand drums from traditional materials, deer hide, elk hide. I had to teach myself some of these skills at home because I had the time, <laughs> but it's been really fun. I've, I've taught one class and I've helped some others build their own and, and trying to connect with a bison uh, ranch in South Dakota to get buffalo hides and hopefully be able to continue this for others. It's really great to use these drums for uh, sweat lodge ceremonies, uh, mm -hmm. which I'm a fire keeper of. So there's been a number of things that I've been able to kind of get back into and I really relish that opportunity and you know, kind of see this challenging situation for the good that it's created. You know, you, you just mentioned reconnecting. You introduced yourself in a different language. Can you tell us a little bit more about what you said at the beginning and how connecting to language is reconnecting? Oh, my God. Yeah, absolutely. In our sacred language, hyakinuki, uh, which just means the words of the mouth. So that's kind of the little translation of our language. It's a very simple language. Uh, for example, we don't have direct translation words like telephone. It would be something like uh, the talking stone. 
because it's very descriptive and almost poetic. But we also have a lot of code switching uh, because there is a lot of Spanish influence. So you'll hear a lot of Spanish Mexican words uh, within the language. So Leos and Chim on Yahoo just means uh, the Creator be with you. Mm. You know, we we believe in a in a higher sacred force that we allow other people to believe is their God, but the universal <laughs> said, yeah, the one creator. Uh, so we always uh, hope and wish that uh, the creator is with you in your thoughts and in your heart as you travel forward with good intentions in the world. Kechamalea just is uh, the common greeting of how are you? And Ketui is just uh, doing well. Kechamalea. Cool. Mm. I don't know if we ever talked about this. I really love languages and how they reflect culture and history and just a, a fascinating body in and of its own for us to connect over. So thank you for bringing that and thank you for, for talking about all these cool projects. I didn't know that, that you do beading. You said you, you self-taught a lot of these things. Did you just like experiment with beading? Are there like online tutorials? Or is there specific beading types or drum building that is special for different First Nations? In terms of the cultural relevant drum building, it's uh, definitely part of um, most traditions of tribes to to have drums. And it's usually part of the tradition of that tribe to you know use the animal that they hunt for yakis, that is the deer. For plains tribes, that might be you know definitely the bison, the kutankawa, and uh, you know perhaps other deer and elk as well. But currently, you know, goat is goat hides are one of the most common drum materials in the world, and so it's uh, very simple to kind of make one in that way. For example, the number of strands you pull together on the back of the drum is significant. Mm -hmm. You can do 16 or 12, and then you divide that into four for the sacred directions of the medicine wheel. And so you build it into that pattern for strength and rigidity. I did not totally grasp how intentional even uh, tying the knot at the back. And you mentioned ojo venado, right? That's right. Uh, Ojo de venados. Uh, mm -hmm. It just means eye of the deer in Spanish. And what that interprets is, as is uh, for the Yaqui people, the deer has the special ability to traverse the five añas, which means worlds. So there are five worlds. Uh, some are physical, some are spiritual, some are internal, some are ethereal. And uh, it has the only, it's the only creature that can traverse them. So when you hold this uh, a bead, it's a, it's, it's a seed, uh, but it looks like a deer's eye. It holds back the uh, mal de ojo, the evil eye, and mm. protects the heart and the soul uh, from the intrusion of the evil intentions of others. Wow. I feel like we could all use some ojo de venado right oh, now. absolutely. <laughs> right, Alexis? <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. So to shift tracks fairly rapidly, we need to acknowledge that we are recording this within the weeks of the murder of George Floyd by police and in the midst of a series of protests across the country, across the world, declaring that Black Lives Matter. So with mm -hmm. that all on our minds, policing, etc., we had a brief talk before this podcast and you mentioned the history of policing and how that interacts with First Nations peoples. Can you tell us a little more about the thoughts on policing and the systemic problems that we have and how that affects the First Nations? Yeah, absolutely. Policing uh, near or around First Nations is, is unique in the sense that tribal lands do not tend to be within cities, and that's by design. So we have to usually interact with sheriff's departments, 
which in these large remote territories are, are very nil. So there is no response time for state-funded police efforts to combat crime on the reservations. And the states just kind of wash their hands of it and just say, well, you know, you're a sovereign nation, therefore it's your issue. The uh, Bureau of Indian Affairs, it's a federal agency, is supposed to be able to be one of our uh, assets uh, as sovereign nations to be able to help investigate crimes. And, and that's actually federal. So we actually have FBI agents, you know, uh, assisting or helping with on-reservation uh, crime. However, because of that lack of relationship and the, the cruel past of the BIA being the Department of War, uh, when the U.S. government was na murdering Native Americans and then transformed into you know the semi-benevolent but very ineffective force, the BIA, you know, the federal government doesn't step in to the level that we need. So it creates this gap of uh, policing and of uh, crime prevention and of uh, you know, crime resolution where there are predatory agents and that can be like non-Indian members who see this gap and exploit it for what it is. They say they know that we are underfunded. They know that our response times are slow, low or not at all. And so they see us as sitting ducks. And because of that, we have really high rates of crime and unsolved crime on and near reservations that get very little attention. Mm -hmm. So I'm curious. How do the multi-jurisdictional facets affect the effectiveness of policing forces? Uh, well, as you can imagine, it makes them uh, highly ineffective because they'll just uh, give you the runaround. They'll say, you know, we're not really involved. Uh, that's closer to that area. You know, go talk to them over there. You go and you and they say the same thing. So they really just kind of pass you back and forth, you know, like not wanting to hold any accountability and not wanting to build, uh, you know, actual partnerships. Are there any instances in any of these agencies where they are trying to make any attempt at community representation within their forces, within their organizations to build better relationships? You know, honestly, I haven't heard of any successful campaigns like that. I think mm -hmm. that they get built often. There's a very recent example from March, uh, the Missing and Emerging Indigenous Women's Task Force that, mm -hmm. you know, is built to solve these exact issues. And you can find very little uh, positive success or stories about their achievements. And that just goes to show that it's very much lip service and not something that uh, they're truly vested in in solving. So is the Coalition to Stop Violence Against Native Women, is that a movement that has really grown out of that absence of cooperation from the government then? Absolutely. Part of Native sovereignty is having to do for yourself without the assistance of the government. Because despite the fact that we, you know, want there to be an existing relationship, you know, we find ourselves having to fend for ourselves. All of that is so disheartening and it's terrible to hear. And, you know, I hope that out of these reforms, we're able to advocate for a broader reform, both inside our cities and outside of it and across the country. Is there anything in particular that are on a list of demands that we could call our senators or anything about? You know, I think that there's been a lot of really great projects over the past few years. Uh, the Red Dress Project is one such example. The Violence Against Women Act, uh, which was reinstated recently uh, after a lot of uh, senatorial conflict with that <laughs> whole project. 
And so, you know, there are efforts going on, but I think that first and foremost, I think it's everyone's individual responsibility to try to just get a little bit of education about these things and and really just be an advocate for uh, Native communities because you mentioned inside and outside of cities. And while, you know, these statistics, a lot of them come from reservations, the larger majority of Native Americans or First Nations people in the United States uh, don't live on reservations. They live in cities. That is one fact that not everyone you know, thinks about. And yet, even when they live outside of the reservations, they still have a lot of issues with you know, health, with wellness, with uh, connecting and finding community. Um, we're going to take a brief second here to pause mm-hmm. for some messages from Seth. Hey everyone, this is Seth. I use he, him pronouns, and I'm one of the audio editors and volunteers here at UBP. The Unconscious Bias Project brings creative, accessible, evidence-based solutions for unintentional bias to academic, technological, governmental organizations, and beyond. We sustain a welcoming home for inquisitive and creative minds and encourage a growth mindset, working by the model 0% guilt, 100% empowerment. Please subscribe or follow our Facebook and Instagram for the latest in events and how you can learn more and be involved. Also, take a moment and check out our guest website and learn more. Look for that information in the description section of your podcast or on our website. you work with a company wanting to learn more about diversity, equity, and inclusivity? Have you been wondering, what's the next step? UBP offers workshops, consulting, and so much more. Send us an email, mention that you've heard this from our podcast, and use the promo code UBPPOD2020 and receive $1,000 off a three-workshop package. Details are in the description section of our podcast. Also, don't forget our end-of-the-year fundraiser coming soon. Check our website for more details. And now we're back. Ricky, you know, some of our listeners may or may not know what is the movement or the issues at hand with uh, missing and murdered Indigenous women. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yes. So missing and murdered Indigenous women's and Indigenous peoples has been a uh, issue for quite a, uh, many decades. It's picked up more cultural awareness in, in mainstream recently because of some very positive campaigns to, to really be a voice and speaker for these uh, lost sisters and these lost brothers who you know, have no real chance of resolution on these cases. You know, I was just going through a few of them today. And one such fact is that Native American women are five times more likely in some cases to experience uh, sexual abuse or sexual assault than your average American woman. That's startling nonetheless. And the abuse comes from Native and non-Native entities. A lot of the times this happens in those ungoverned or unregulated uh, communities that I mentioned earlier that don't Mm -hmm. have adequate police forcing to investigate or look this up. Even as I look through some of our sisters that are lost recently in some stories, the police reports are so vague and so callous and just say things like, you know, they were they were just drunk or they were known to, 
you know, be a troubled entity or, or it was a suicide mm. without any evidence oh. uh, of it. They just call it suicide so that they can just be completely void or completely unaccountable for actually investigating. Oh, wow. One of the things that I learned in sort of doing this, this research, learning about First Nations peoples and sort of the challenges they have faced and they're currently facing, especially around COVID-19, is that some of these cities, both when they're reporting, you know, police statistics or when they're reporting even right now, like cases of COVID-19, those that are actually reporting anything to the public don't count First Nations people or Native Americans as a separate category, much less, you know, what tribes and or specific nations they are or were a member of. To my understanding, it probably sort of multiplies the effect of erasure on First Nations people, because if you don't have the data of, oh, this happened in this police encounter or, you know, a full accounting of who the person that was the the victim or the person that was in this encounter with police or even who is the person in like a COVID-19 report, then it's much harder to find resources for that, right? So if you have no data around First Nations people, First Nations women in police encounters, if you have no data around First Nations people coming down with COVID-19, then it's much harder to say like, hey, we need some policies around this, or hey, we need some additional resources and you touched on it, you know, it's this idea that there isn't a accounting system for understanding the background and demographics of community members, because just like the resistance to, you know, studying gun violence, no one really wants to study these issues because it would really put the accountability on the police departments and the, you know, the enforcement uh, arm of our, our states to actually kind of reform themselves. And that's not something that we see. We, we see a very militant, very tough on crime stance taken. At the same time, this this begins even before, you know, people are getting booked into jail. This begins in the education system where you have like three strikes policies and like first time um, suspensions from Mm -hmm. schools. Uh, And so, you know, you've heard of the, you know, school to prison pipeline. And that is Mm -hmm. something that, you know, takes its start from the very beginning within K through 12 education, where you have so many students, you know, getting suspended for behavioral issues. When you look at into the background of those children's home life. Often they're a single parent, you know, usually the mother. Um, Why is the father gone? Sometimes, you know, drugs, crime, prison uh, are the common culprits. Um, Sometimes just not being able to financially be there. So we have a generation of what we call lost fathers. And in in many communities, you know, native and non and, and white as well there is this misunderstanding of uh, the behavioral issues of students. And, you know, after a few outbreaks, they're, they're just kicked out. And after so many expulsions from schools, there's, there's no real way for them to understand their place within education. And so they turn to things that they know and see within their community. And that's often gang violence and gang crime. You know, being part of an in- initiated group is as close to a, you know, honoring ceremony towards manhood that they're going to get within their environment. And, and that's, that's really tragic. And, you know, I see men, young men of any race, you know, going into gangs as uh, a way of embracing that pathway into masculinity all on their own with what is available. And that's tragic. And so 
the the problem of uh, gangs within any city often relates to that inability of the school education system or the parents themselves to be able to provide a nurturing uh, background and a pathway towards adult growth. It's like a an evil clusterfuck of reinforcing terrible situations that lead to terrible outcomes that lead to further terrible situations. I'm yeah. putting that quote on my wall. <laughs> which which quote? Evil clusterfuck. Yeah, Yeah, Yeah. it's it's really what it is. It's you know sort of like institutional and systemic problems that affect the everyday, and because they affect the everyday, they affect the family life. Because they affect the family life, they affect the education system. They affect the the prison system. The the even you know the way law enforcement interacts with you. And one of my favorite books, where you know I really started connecting these these issues. That book for white folks who teach in the hood and the rest of y'all too. <laughs> Have you That's read that book? That's a wonderful title. No, but it's amazing. <laughs> oh, it's it's amazing. It's it's by Christopher Emden. He talks about you know what you're saying that you know all of these issues with police violence really comes from schooling and the history and schooling, and he draws a parallel between black students and First Nations students. And how First Nations people way in the beginning was a way to erase indigenous culture. It was a way to sort of, mm. you know, yeah. For You're talking of, about the boarding schools. Yes, the boarding schools. Um, oh my god, that, that was so terrible. <laughs> sorry to bring it up. <laughs> I'm like, I feel you. It's like I'm excited to talk about it because it's such an important thing that that I feel like a lot of people don't know about. It's so terrible. And I really do think, you know, this history of literally beating out the culture of people is with us today. And, you know, you talked about the three strike system. It's also affecting black students, uh, Latinx students, especially, I feel, for young, young boys. Well, absolutely, because, you know, masculinity uh, in in American society today has been corrupted by uh, these old archetypal ideas uh, that, that are very binary constructs about what it means to be a man. You know, I remember, you know, my father was, a, you know, a Navy veteran, but he definitely was influenced by that system. And so, you know, anything that I did that was uh, considered feminine, uh, like art or, or cooking, you know, it immediately made me a gay faggot, you know, um, wow. something like that, you know. Whoa. It's a very common story a lot of uh, people experience in their life. And so actually this past year, and I didn't mention this earlier, masculine growth has been a big part of my work this past year. And it's come from non-native uh, mentors because oftentimes that's where it grows first. But I'm, lo- I'm looking to build this new identity as a you know, masculine mentor for, for native boys because we do have a history of you know, two-spirited understanding. We do have a history of you know, understanding the spectrum of life and, you know, respecting and honoring the gifts that every individual has without shaming and guilting it from a very Eurocentric, uh, you know, Western standpoint uh, from which America was created. Tell me more about about this journey about, um, you know, in uh, Latinx cultures, definitely in Colombia, very heavy effect of colonialism on misogyny, mm-hmm. right? And how... Absolutely. And how we treat our women and how we view our queer Latinx folks 
Um, mm-hmm. And it's baked in there, right? It's in, in our, in Spanish, it's baked into the language, right? Everything has to be binary. A, mm, a, yeah. Absolutely. Um, and we, and I'm, I'm working in this space. I thought a lot about, you know, what are we communicating to uh, my three-year-old about being a kid and then being a boy and then, you know, sort of opening it up to like, you, you can do all these things or you can, you know, while not, you know, shielding him from the reality, right? I mean, right, right now, I think, I think we're okay. He said that when he grew up, he was going to be a mom and he was going to have a vagina. Um, so I think, I think he's, <laughs> I think he's getting good messaging so far. You know, um, it's something that, that a lot of folks are understanding, you know, we need to work on. I think definitely a lot of your, your culture, a lot of First Nations cultures have an understanding of, you, you said like a two-spirit approach to, to things. How are you sort of melding or translating, if you will, what you're learning from non-First Nations mentors to, you know, what you know from growing up, Pasquayaki and... Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, you know, because uh, my father was not there in the parenting capacity, um, that he was very career focused and he was, you know, when it came to uh, asking for assistance, it was, you know, something like, you're smart, figure it out. You know, that sort of uh, parental guidance, Mm -hmm. you know, like, it's not that hard, just be smarter, you know, real like bumper sticker logic that, you know, has (laughs) really no uh, benevolent, you know, (laughs) outcomes uh, when it's, you know, told in a a very loud or aggressive way, you know, just be Mm -hmm. this way, just be that way, don't do this, don't do that, you know, like that kind Mm -hmm. of like uh, binary parenting does not, you know, take into the nuance like, oh, so what do you think about that? You know, how did you get mm. to that conclusion? You know, simple uh, tactics like that. That's what I mean when I say, you know, there's a generation of lost fathers uh, within America because they just figure, oh, that's women's work. You know, like the the the, women, mm. the wifey is going to figure out how to make this kid, you know, do his chores. You know, I'm going to be there with my belt and uh, welts, you know, to, to kind of be the enforcer of the, these laws, but not really going to help them understand it in a, in a constructive way. You know, he grew up, you know, very machismo, very in that, uh, you know, Mexican culture of uh, bravado and identity uh, as, you know, a womanizer. You know, this is how you create value for yourself as a man. You know, you fuck women, you know, like you, you know, you, you just get that pussy, you know, like that's all it's about, you know. And so for a long time, because I was very nerdy and I was very unsure of myself, like I, I just thought I had no value in the world because I wasn't getting uh, all, all that. I wasn't out there doing all that. You know, I was being a good boy. You know, helping my mom and stuff like that. When it comes to masculine uh, spiritual growth uh, work, you know, they call it they call it many things, um, but you know, I just call it masculine empowerment right now. You know, I started. I, I was in this book club. This uh, this other man, Chris Grimes, who is part of uh, Sacred Sons, a kind of uh, outlet for you know spiritual growth mindset uh, for men. We read this book because it was recommended by the Mankind Project. And after reading that book, which was called titled uh, King, Warrior, Magician, Lover, it just brought to me this really fundamental understanding about literally everyone's growth, uh, including women, which is that we all start in this child state in our lives, you know, before we, you know, are actualized or, you know, have our ceremony to become 
the woman or man, you know, that we are meant to be, or or the non-binary construct. And, and during that time, during our, you know, air quotes, adolescence, uh, which can last into your 30s or your 40s, if you don't ever have a spiritual growth experience, you will always be this unactuated child living on a fear mentality. And I see that so much in a lot of 40 and 50 year olds uh, online, where they just continue to be led by these childish constructs of unavailability to understanding, resistance to change. Those things like that growing your ideas and growing your mindsets is something that adults do very well. You know, we have initiation ceremonies in, in tribal cultures and all around the world, those have been robbed from us by things like the Carlisle schools, the native boarding schools you mentioned. Without yeah. that initiation into adulthood, we are left with this uh, childlike thinking. If you're only left with pseudo initiations that are granted by society based on education, then you really have nowhere to go when it comes to spiritual growth work. And mm. that's something that communities help sustain. You know, Native communities, Irish communities, you know, African communities, you know, they all have that uh, ancestral knowledge that no longer get shared because we are homogenized into one American culture too often. There is just this terrible history of complete erasure of entire cultures, entire people in Colombia. I have no knowledge of who my ancestors might have been other than, you know, taking a DNA test, which I have, but, you know, won't tell me like, hey, okay, this specific tribe or, you know, this specific mm -hmm. Culture and I, I wonder. It makes it just made me wonder. Like I wonder what kind of rituals may or may not, you know, have existed that would have helped guide or, or structure me into becoming an adult. I love that you you brought the attention to intentionality, Ricky. Mm -hmm. And without that discussion among boys becoming men, it seems like a lot of them grow up to just flail. Yeah, in their masculinity rather than having these ways that they can really say, this is how I should behave. I'm a Eagle Scout former, so I was in Boy Scouts for years. And, you know, it's one of the things that I'm thankful for is that there was an ongoing dialogue about what it meant to be growing up and what the values were, what the positive values were around being at the time, I thought I was boy. <laughs> Turns out, yeah. not true. I appreciate that. So are there those sorts of things that you're seeing in these ceremonies and the intentionality in some of, in some of these cultures that are marginalized in some of the First Nations cultures? Are you seeing that intentionality and that discussion around positive traits? Or is that one of those things that you, you feel like you're trying to fill back in right now? So I am trying to backfill it back in because two reasons why. One, in the Yaqui culture, we do have a lot of uh, Spanish influence into our identity and into our way of interacting. So that binary construct is more adapted and enforced in, in our heritage than it is in other tribes. For example, there's mm -hmm. very strict uh, male roles and there's very strict female roles. And although we are a matriarchal society, uh, you know, honoring the woman really? above all, 
yes. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, so uh, within the Yaki leadership, uh, there is a severe lack of female, uh, you know, chairwomanship. You know, even though we say, you know, we honor and respect the the female, that doesn't really play out in the what I see. You know, I do see a lot of adult men, you know, struggling to fulfill you know, that role as like real leadership, we have that in common with other rural tribal communities where you just, the male leadership is not leading us into the future, but really just kind of sustaining the status quo. You've talked about sort of some of the issues with the strict binaryism, the perpetuating or maintaining the status quo, which is misogyny, despite the matriarchal culture that surrounds it. Tying into um, what we talked way at the beginning about the murdered indigenous women and this role of like policing and the very strict upbringing, what would be your your recommendation to you know First Nations people out there for connection or or to try to I don't know what I'm trying to say, but I feel like there's there's a recommendation bubbling here. <laughs> no, no, I, I I definitely see you know kind of like the thin red string of where you're trying to head with this. And, you know, I struggle with this myself because, you know, when COVID started, we started to see rises in domestic violence, you know, rises in, you know, children, you know, maybe potentially like running away because all their structures are gone. All their, you know, all their interactions with other children, with other, you know, more positive parental figures, you know, disappeared. And everyone's been stuck at home. One thing that you know, I, I tried to do when, when this all started was just beginning to reach out to people I hadn't talked to in a long time. And I'm still trying to do that in a good way. And they still really appreciate it. You know, they'll be like, oh, it's been months or years. You know, it's still great to hear from you. I think that, you know, checking in with our community is really the most fundamental thing that we can offer is that presence, uh, even if it's virtual, even if it's just by phone, to know that we're still connected, even if we're not seeing each other, you know, even if we're not sharing space, to know that our thoughts and intentions are with our community. Making those calls and just connecting with uh, all the people you've forgotten for a long time. And, you know, I think there's a little bit of guilt when you pick up the phone and, and begin to call someone that you haven't talked to in a long time, like, oh, I should have been staying in touch or I'm not a great friend or this, that, or the other. But, you know, what the creator teaches us and what we learn in the sweat lodge is that, you know, you only have today. Don't think about where, what, what's been done. You have the time, the ability, the strength, and the, and the words today to make change. And that's all you have to do is work today. Hell yeah, Ricky. That was really powerful. Love it. Um, <laughs> I'm curious, what is it that UBP could do and our listeners to support First Nations communities right now and in the future? You know, I would say that beyond just joining a, another change.com petition and another uh-huh. group or, you know, posting uh, another, you know, standing in solidarity, you know, Facebook post is really just actually you know, reaching out to any natives, you know, you know, asking them about their culture, learning just a little bit more of what they know, making a native friend, you know, like connecting with a native community, like, that would just be so powerful. If people came to us with good hearts and intentions, you know, not after the fact that someone was missing or murdered it yet again, but before it, you know, just now, Mm -hmm. just when you have the time. There is a huge Facebook group that's called a social distancing powwow. I think there's over like 60,000 people in the group. There's folks sharing their traditional dances, their beadwork, their stories. They talk about their path 
to sobriety. There's all sorts of, mm-hmm. you know, community and intersection. And I've just by watching and, you know, interacting with these folks in the Facebook group, you know, just responding like, oh, that's really beautiful or whatever. I'm like learning about First Nations people and the different cultures. And I've been fascinated to start to learn about these very specific dances and or very specific types of songs and mm. and how they they each have such deep meaning or they're part of creating community and, and celebrating community so, so there's there's easy things to do um and another thing mm. folks can do you can even reach out to ricky through facebook absolutely as ricky vegas that's r-i-c-k-y-v-e-g-a-s and on instagram ricky vegas three do you post your beadwork and your drums that you make and test them out on your Instagram? You know, I'm starting to. Uh, Instagram is not my strongest social media, and it's something that's sort of recent for me. <laughs> okay. Okay, well, that's cool. So you can look forward to more of that. And then also, Ricky, you shared with us when, when we first started talking about um, other ways that folks can support First Nations people, and that's uh, through donating. You have a specific uh, links Coalition to Stop Violence Against Native Women at csvanw.org slash donate, as well as relief efforts directly serving urban First Nation peoples in Southern Arizona. That's a GoFundMe. So it's gofundme.com slash F slash S-A-Z hyphen urban hyphen native hyphen relief. Shout outs. Uh, is there anyone, Ricky, that you would like to give a shout out to, um, whether it's a specific person or an organization, somebody who has something coming up? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I'd like to give a quick shout out uh, to Juan Jaquez, uh, my spiritual mentor. Uh, I want to give a shout out to uh, Melody Lopez for her work with indigenous communities here in Southern Arizona. As mentioned, she's the one leading the Urban Native Relief Fund or I'm sorry, you know, a a part of the Urban Native Relief Fund. Those two people are, you know, doing fantastic work. And I always got a shout out to my mom. You know, she's, uh, she created a pathway for me. And, you know, I really appreciate uh, that mentorship throughout my life. So uh, what are you working on right now that maybe we haven't mentioned yet that we can look forward to? Do you have anything coming up in the works? Yeah, absolutely. I'll just I'll I'll soon be posting this on uh, Instagram uh, because that's the the new platform I'm trying to get involved with. Mm-hmm. So uh, yeah, drums and necklaces to be coming. Uh, our tribal recognition ceremony is coming up in September, so I'm preparing for that. But also doing uh, a ceremonial sage run. So we're going to go and pick sage and make bundles for uh, you know blessings and uh, clearing space. Could you tell us what that recognition day is in celebration of? Um, yeah, it's uh, it's in September. It's the uh, I think it's the 37th year of honoring uh, the Pascoyaki tribe as a sovereign nation. So we were kind of late to the game. That's great. So thank you so much, Ricky, for chatting yeah. with us, uh, teaching with us, sharing. So today, um, Alexis and I talked to Ricky Vegas Triana, and we talked about everything from how intentional knots are in drums. That is so fascinating. 
building uh, spaces for positive masculinity, for, you know, intentionally connecting to ourselves as people. We also talked about um, health inequities facing First Nations people, the bridges that we can see between uh, First Nations experiences and Black experiences with police and in, in schools and how that's all interconnected. We even talked about, you know, what it's like to grow up with, you know, different family structures and how some of those structures that are, you know, non-parent parental figures that we can't really access right now and, and some, and Ricky's tips for um, how to survive this pandemic, how to survive and sustain ourselves through important movements like Black Lives Matter and like bringing attention to missing and murdered indigenous women. Uh, we talked about so many things. Uh, Ricky, thank you so much. Thanks for listening. You can find more information and donate at unconsciousbiasproject.org. Dr. Lynette Mara, she, her, and Alexis Crone, she, her, are your hosts. Seth Beckman, he, him, and Alexis Crone are your editing team. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to this podcast and follow us. We can be found on Facebook at Unconscious Bias Project, Twitter at UBP underscore STEM, LinkedIn, Instagram, or join our mailing list. UBP is a physically sponsored project of Social Good Fund, a tax-deductible 501c3 nonprofit organization. If you wish to sponsor us, please contact us in the Contact Us tab at unconsciousbiasproject.org.